This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. Because the tiara is comparatively light and the honeysuckle motifs are like little fans and they sit proud of the head and the back's open, it, it, it's a very wearable piece. Whereas the palm and lotus is very heavy. It's a stonker, yeah. I always <laughs> mean to... I, I always mean to uh, to weigh it, and I never get round to it. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Sash, first of all, if you could tell us a little bit about your role at Chatsworth as a curator and what that involves since it's been a family home since the 16th century. It has, it has. So I'm the curator of decorative arts and what that means at Chatsworth is that I look after the furniture, the ceramics, the glass, the clocks, the metals, the ephemera, um, but more excitingly for me, the jewels and the gems. So how many things would that involve? Like thousands? Yes, conservatively thousands. Um, If you were to count every plate every cup, every chair. I mean, you're in the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds, really, if you were going to really count everything. So it's a lot. One of the things that I probably preoccupy myself with too much are things that we don't have any longer and tracking little mysteries, um, which we'll probably touch on later in our conversation. What things that have been owned by the family that you would like to have back in the collection? I just like to know where they are sometimes. There's lots of different reasons why things leave collections but because we have such amazing archives and letters it's really easy to fall down rabbit holes and and just chase these amazing stories because as you said we we have nearly 500 years of jewellery particularly but things and occupation to think about. Did the family start collecting jewellery from the very beginning? Jewellery was such a status symbol it was something that they would have needed to have and that's almost part of the reason why we don't have certainly very early things anymore because when those things were out of fashion it was as bad as not having them at all so what happens is things are refashioned, repurposed, um, they might leave the family, they might be willed out but we can look at portraits um, and letters and, and certainly begin to get a sense of the things that they used to have uh, and where to re- reflect their, their status and their changing status. So have you got any of the very early jewels that would have been owned and worn? It was Bess of Hardwick, wasn't it, originally, who, who built the house? That's right. So she and her husband William come to Chatsworth in around 1549. And she'd been born in Derbyshire and they decided to consolidate their estates and and move. And he was an actuary in the administration of of Henry VIII's court and an administrator of his wealth. Um, And as a married woman living in London, living at court, she she would have had show pieces of jewellery. But we don't have any of those any, any longer. We know that she gifted her ropes of pearls out of the family. 
um, to a daughter-in-law and then they went out of the line. Um, so one of those things that we really associate with her, certainly from her portraits, we don't have any longer. The earliest thing we've got is a signet ring that belonged to the Boyle family, who actually married into the Cavendish family in the 1700s. Um, so it's a male signet ring with a foiled back, um, but not sadly belonging to Bess. And I think that's one of those things that when they, people come to us, they expect that we would have something um, belonging to Bess, but we don't have anything that we certainly, for certain, know belong to her. That's the problem with jewellery, as you say. It's either sold or it's melted down. And fashion has a big role to play here because people are trying to keep up with changing fashions. The thing that often goes is the jewellery, isn't it? That's right, that's right. So, the gold safe. You have taken me down there, which is the most incredible room. I mean, a vast room that just has this sort of golden light that's reflected from chalices, gold cups, candelabra. I mean, it is quite extraordinary what's in there. Incredible jeweled treasures, not necessarily to wear, but jeweled treasures. It is an unforgettable room. One of the the, the large pieces, I, I think you probably remember, are a suite of silver gilt dessert dishes. And they came into the family as a perk, a perquisite, um, because the fourth Duke of Devonshire performed the role of Lord Chamberlain, which meant that when a monarch died, he was able to choose um, different things from the monarch's personal apartments as a perk of the role. So we have um, coronation thrones, a state bed, and this amazing suite of, of shaped silver gilt dishes by William Cripps. So that's another way that things come into the family because of their, their positions at court. So that's amazing. So our colloquial expression, perk of the job, it comes from that time. It does, it does. Perquisite. And they could just, what, strip the royal chamber bare, <laughs> could they? And take what they felt like. In theory, they could. So different roles could choose different things. And sometimes monarchs were quite naughty. They would promise things to different people. Or, um, particularly in the time of Queen Anne, different courtiers would each claim the same thing. And so this led to some quite unseemly fallings out over property. But lots of houses, like Knoll has got lots of beds that were claimed as perks and other places. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why these things, which otherwise would have just been discarded when they became unfashionable, um, have managed to survive in these lesser um, homes because they were regarded as such amazing treasures and they also had that that cachet of the provenance um, so that added not just the richness of the materials but the fact that they had belonged in in the, the royal homes and, and had been slept in by the royal family or used by them at times sometimes you have to take a step back when when you're looking at a collection and think is this actually representative of what was here before because plates, particularly dining plates, could be used as currency, ready cash. So what you might do in times of trouble is you might keep back your most prestigious things. Because actually, all the work, all the workmanship doesn't equate to cash value mm. at, at the melt. So what you might do is take your much simpler dining plates and pieces, take those to the melts or have those adapted because you've got that volume of, of precious material. So sometimes it, it might be really easy to think that absolutely everything in the past was fabulously decorative. And actually there were lots of um, more functional things that were made of precious metals. Silver was considered um, an antibacterial, like quite a healthy thing to, to eat from. So uh, lots of people would have eaten from silver and using silver utensils. So there was probably a lot more silver around than we really realise now. So 
do you think some of these marriages you're talking about jewelry coming into the family um the marriage and gifts do you think some of these marriages are quite advantageous to bring things specific things into the family absolutely i think marriages is a key reason why things come into the family either as gifts to to reflect a woman's changing status on marriage we have a, a necklace in the family it's called the duchess necklace um, and our duchess wears it a lot it's a cabochon rubellite surrounded by diamonds and um, from which are suspended different types of ropes of pearls there's different lengths different numbers and it has always been known as the duchess necklace and we've got photographs um, going back to the early 1900s of a duchess wearing it but we didn't know the provenance of it until a few years ago, one of our volunteers, Kerry, found a letter from 1830, which describes how the necklace came to be. And it was commissioned by the 6th Duke of Devonshire for his niece, Blanche, who married the, the future uh, 7th Duke of Devonshire. And the 6th Duke gave her this amazing necklace as a wedding present. And it's been passed down through all the duchesses ever since. So it's just wonderful to have the letter, to have her description, um, to have photographs of the duchesses wearing it. And they all wear it in different ways. You can take the clasp off and wear it as a brooch. You can wear it as a pendant. You could put it as the centre on a bracelet if you wanted to. Um, but many of them wear it. And with a clasp at the side and with these pearls suspended, it's um, it's lovely to spot it in different photographs. Um, but the, the Burlington marriage is probably the other most significant one that I can think of, and that's where the future fourth Duke of Devonshire married the daughter of the third Earl of Burlington. And through them, uh, Chiswick, Lismore, um, lots of the books, manuscripts, furniture um, and statuary come into the family on, on that marriage. And we know that the Earl and his wife, Lady Dorothy, spent a lot of money on diamonds in the early years of their marriage. So they were obviously quite keen on, on jewellery themselves, and presumably that um, fondness passed down to their daughter Charlotte who married into the family. How did the Henry VIII's rosary beads get into the collection? Well that's the sixth duke again um, he's one of our most prolific collectors and he bought the rosary from Rundland Bridge because they dealt in um, antiquities and the rosary was made while Henry VIII was still married to Catherine of Aragon and we can say that um, with some certainty because it has both of their initials on it so it's a boxwood rosary, uh, 10 beads suspended from a, a cross and a very large paternoster bead at the bottom which, which opens up. And boxwood is this um, very dense wood which, which means that you can carve it very deeply and it, it holds very precise shapes. So unlike other woods where if you carve something it sort of softens, this it's almost like carving stone um, and it ages really well. So it seems that the rosary was in Henry VIII's possession um, and then passed into um, the hands of some French clerics where it remained until the Victorian period. We're not exactly certain when the Sixth Duke bought it, but we know it was at Chatsworth by 1844 and has been here ever since. And, and one of the lovely things about it is not only have we got the rosary, but we've got its fitted case as well, which is, is shaped to the rosary. Um, so it's kind of like a trefoil with a long bit going away from it and it's lined with green velvet inside and the outside is this really rich dark tools brown leather um, so the two together are really quite spectacular and I, I do wish that we had more boxes than we do have 
Um, and I suspect that when boxes go, fittings do too, because, you know, lots of pieces come off their frames and can be reused as pendants and brooches and all kinds of things. So it does tell you a lot about how people intended or, or perhaps did to wear things. And just to focus for a, a moment more about what you haven't got, mm-hmm. um, you don't have any jewels from um, Georgina Cavendish, do you, who is the great style icon who was married to the fifth duke, which most people will have seen played by Kira Knightley in, um, in the film called The Duchess. Yes, so there's probably a number of reasons. And, and I must say, you know, the thing with, with diamonds as with pearls is that once they're detached from their original object, it's really hard to tell whether you've got a diamond that's been with the family for hundreds of years or just a few years. Sometimes you can spot a cut, you know, from one piece to another. So it is possible that there are some diamonds from Georgina lingering around, but we can't say that with any certainty. But one of the reasons why we don't have jewels belonging to her is that she used to buy jewellery in order to pay off debts, to act as collateral on debts, because she had a problem with gambling. So this is one of the sadnesses of Georgina's life. So she was married when she was about 17, and she had this really romantic idea of what her marriage was going to be like. She'd married the premier duke in the country and she was going to be chatelaine of all these wonderful houses and she had this entry into society but the man that she married was quite gruff quite introverted and was quite embarrassed by her um her affection towards him particularly um in public so she felt rejected and she was so young she didn't she didn't know how to begin to navigate this this marriage. So she was a politician, she was a mineralogist, she was a traveller, she was a poet, she was a musician. But sadly, she felt so alone at times in this marriage that gambling became a huge part of her life. And also because it was part of how people socialised then, it was the norm to gamble at home to go out. It was just what you did. But she really struggled with telling the Duke just how bad the gambling debts had got. And she was trying to manage them herself, which was quite a bad idea because she just didn't have the aptitude, I suppose, to manage them. And so she came to this idea of of buying jewellery in order to stand against debts. But because she was unable to manage them, there's this one really, really awful, sad letter where she's trying to lay out exactly what's happened to this particular piece. And she's come to the realisation that not only has she not paid for the jewellery that she bought. She hasn't paid off the debt and she hasn't got the jewellery anymore either. So she's in even more of a pickle than when she actually started. Um, so that probably is a really good reason why we don't have anything that belongs to her any longer. I would hope that some jewellery went to her sister, went to her daughters, her, her niece, but we haven't yet tracked down anything concrete that says um, that that's the case. And, and I rather feel that if that provenance was known, that that would have come out even anecdotally, and it hasn't. You need to trace down these card sharks at the time, because maybe they were paid <laughs> off in jewels. Well, maybe. Um, her son had the really unenviable job of inviting her, the people she owed money to, to come forward and, and to prove that, that they were owed money um, and that he would pay the debts, and it, it took years um, to do that. Um, but they did they did attempt to do it. So you do have one of the most magnificent collections in the world of carved gemstones collected by the second Duke. Now, he really was an avid collector, wasn't he? He was. He was from the generation 
um, who who were the, the first to be able to resume the Grand Tour. And he had an interest in poetry and literature of the ancient world. So when he went on his Grand Tour, he collected medals, coins and also carved gems. And we have one of the largest collections that's still in the family who originally collected it. So he was touring Rome, Naples and actively buying. How long was he away for on the Grand Tour? He was away for a couple of years, but this interest continued when he got home. So we've got these wonderful letters between the Duke and an agent, Baron von Stosch, talking about von Stosch finding things for him and describing them and sending them back. And then the Duke sealing a letter with one of the gems that von Stosch had found for him. And these descriptions about how they how they came to be here and it, it's wonderful to read the letter and then to realize that you've actually still got the gem in the collection so we've got a good half a dozen of those so he had uh, roman greek gems and also renaissance ones so the bulk of the around about 500 were collected by the second duke but also augmented by his son his grandson and his great great grandson as well but they're just trays and trays and trays and different colors and it's all glyptic arts, isn't it? It's all either carved into the hard gemstone, sardonyx or some other hard gemstone, or it's carved in relief, sort of cameo style. That's right. So um, they are miniature sculptures, glyptics, which means to carve an intaglio where the design is, is into the stone and cameo where it's relieved. And you might choose a stone um, where you can use the colours to create the design so uh, and what that particularly when you're illustrating a, a myth you know orion riding the dolphin or something like that is you can use the different color stones to be the fur on an animal or the scales on a fish or or the hair on a person and they are really spectacular um but as you say there's um there's lots of carnelians um, sapphires amethyst emeralds aquamarines lots and lots of colours and, and they're set as rings and, and pendants but also um, in the pro. And they tell incredibly, as you say, complicated classical stories. So part of this was a sort of scholarly interest, wasn't it? Absolutely. So, so the Duke would not only have understood what the story being illustrated was, but also would have shared those with people who had similar interests. So back at home, these would have been displayed in a, a cabinet. And we actually have the ball cabinet that he had made to keep these in and a portrait of the Duke and the cabinet and the gems by Charles Jervis. So that's an amazing thing to have. Um, but he would invite people with a similar interest to come to his cabinet in his closet um, to enjoy the gems, the impressions. They might have looked at old master drawings that illustrated the, the stories and, and books and impressions and, and engravings. So there was a whole, a whole world based around these gemstones, which you could also wear and communicate your interest to others. And then some were set into the famous Devonshire Parure. Not everybody agreed with that, did they? They thought that they were taking the authority of the gems and creating something too frivolous. Yes, yes. So uh, it's 1856 and the sixth Duke's niece and nephew, the Granvilles, are going to the coronation of Tsar Alexander II and acting as Queen Victoria's representatives. And the sixth Duke had already been to a Russian coronation. So he knew that any woman attending these variety of social events would need a suite of jewellery, 
to see her through the different types of events but also it would need to be something really quite special because the kokoshniks and other things at the russian court were so spectacular whatever uh, a woman uh, going there would need was something really quite different so they hit upon this idea of taking 88 gems cameos and intaglios from the collection and setting them into seven different pieces of jewelry let's see there was um, a bando uh, a coronet a diadem a necklace a bracelet uh, a stomacher i'm missing one a comb a comb not to be worn um, at the same time i think you could probably manage three um so a headpiece like a coronet or a comb a necklace and a bracelet or something in there but no i think if you put them you couldn't put them all on together um but we certainly don't think that's what she did but you would need them for afternoon gatherings and different parties and balls and, and the coronation itself and it was set in gold which was enameled in the holbanesque style and then the whole thing as hancock's described it lightened with diamonds because they set the jewelry and there's a letter from C.F. Hancocks, who designed and made the parole, to Joseph Paxton, who was the sixth Duke's agent on these kind of projects. And he writes to Paxton that it's going to need some diamonds, else the whole will be dark and utterly spoiled. Now, if that isn't a smart marketing trick, I don't know what is. So we've got these beautiful um, renderings of, of the parole as it comes to fruition. And Countess Maria takes the suite uh, and wears it. And it's this huge success. She comes back and she wears it to a reception at Buckingham Palace. It goes on display in London and Manchester. And it's illustrated and people can buy the booklets where... Not only the jewels themselves are illustrated, but the description of the stone, the story that it illustrates, is included as well. But a, a later um, librarian and curator at Chatsworth, um, Eugenie Strong, she was an archaeologist. So she was interested in the stones for their archaeological interest. And she did have some concerns that uh, somehow setting these stones, which you know were a fabulous interest to, to scholars, might somehow be making them a bit frivolous. Um, and it is true that carved gems are terrifically difficult to see when they're set in a piece of jewellery. That's why they lend themselves to study in a cabinet. You're really meant to, to hold them in a good light, in a range of different lights, and, and study them up close, um, which, is, which is why they're, they're you know, very difficult to display for the public. So how many tiaras are there in the collection? We've looked at quite a few, and I'll be posting those on Instagram because they are sensational. How many How many do you have there? So aside from the two headpieces in the parole, we've got two diamond tiaras as well. So we have the honeysuckle tiara, which was made in 1865 for Lady Louisa Egerton, who was the daughter of the seventh Duke of Devonshire, and the palm and lotus tiara, which was made in 1897, by A.F. Skinner for Duchess Louise, the wife of the 8th Duke of Devonshire. And the honeysuckle has quite a substantial stone in the centre. It does, it does. Uh, quite a large stone. It's certainly a big diamond with a very, very beautiful colour. But it, it's, it's funny, because the tiara's comparatively light and the honeysuckle motifs are like little fans um, and they sit proud of the head and the back's open, it, it, it's a very wearable piece. Um, and... The present Duchess and her eldest daughter both chose to wear it at their weddings because it's so wearable. It's a very feminine, very light piece. Whereas the palm and lotus is very heavy. It's a stonker. Yeah, I always <laughs> mean to. I 
I always mean to uh, to weigh it, and I never get round to it. But um, certainly Duchess Evie, who was mistress of the robes uh, to Queen Mary, did complain of the weight of the tiara. And I think it's really interesting to think about how head ornaments were worn, because you can see on photographs of successive duchesses wearing the tiara, how they position it differently on their head. And I think this is to do partially with their hairstyles. So Duchess Louise in 1897 has this very high piled Victorian hair and the tiara was designed to sit very straight on top of this stack of hair so she had this wonderful cushion between the weight of the tiara and her head. Um, Duchess Evie sort of the same she has this piled Edwardian hairdo but when we get to the 1950s and Duchess Mary's wearing it she's got a much shorter it's not quite shingled but it's a, a shorter hairstyle and the tiara moves down so it's sitting more on the back of her head and I think that's partially to do with the size of it but also the comfort of wearing it and Duchess Louise had a real calamity when she wore the tiara she attended the coronation of Edward the seventh these are terrifically long days you have to get up at about four in the morning to get into your peeress robes and make the journey to the abbey and then sit and wait and once you're in there you're in there um and she had been at this coronation and i was bursting to powder her nose after it was all done so she's running from the coronation you know you've got to imagine you know she's got the robes under one arm and and she's running to get to the to the ladies and she slips over and the tiara comes off her head and bounces away in front of her and one of the other peeresses has to go and fetch it and plonk it back on her head so you know it's not all glamour this um this getting dressed up and wearing jewelry is it well you have to suffer for the beauty of it don't you because <laughs> i guess the stomachers are pretty heavy and scratchy and i mean you had to have very substantial fabrics to yeah to wear and i guess i mean that's that's what they were designing for those wardrobes you would have had your your underlayer your chemise close to your skin you'd have had your let's say your contouring layers um and then the final layer of your your gown so the, the stomacher it's 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 a kite shape and it's got this sort of um it's almost like a crenellation with arches on the top and then a very large suspended jewel and in the center of it there's a lapis intaglio which can be detached and worn as a brooch so the back of it has this large pin and then the whole thing is kind of suspended chains into which the stones are set so were you to wear that close to your skin it, it would be scratchy um, but that's not what they had in mind when it was designed the the bracelet however is lovely it's um these two rounded curves of gold and this lovely um thick thumb latch and it, it just fits the wrist absolutely beautifully then the necklace i should imagine would be quite scratchy on, on your skin but i just can't impress enough to anyone listening the trays and trays and trays fan holders combs posy rings incredible snake emerald diamond snake jewels i mean it's it's so such a rich collection and of course there are lots of insect jewels um debo devonshire famously used to wear the insect jewels didn't she she did so she had a fondness for insects we've got a large suite of table ceramics that are decorated with insects that she knew as a, as a child and her husband duke andrew um, used to buy her insect jewelries, and we've got some wonderful photographs her favorite way to wear them was lined up down her front 20 or 30 at a time or down her sleeves um, and she had crickets and wasps and bees and 
just every manner of insects that you can imagine. So we have a couple of those left in the collection and a few were loaned back to us for House Style, the exhibition of 2017, because she'd gifted quite a number to, to female relatives and close friends. So that was nice to have them back together again. And how important is this collection of jewellery in telling the story of the house, in your opinion? I think it's vital, really, um, because jewellery is such a personal thing. If you don't know anything else about it, you can talk about the craftsmanship and the type of stones and the period when it's likely to have come into the family. But when you do know something about it, it can illustrate so much about a person's taste and aspirations. Um, we've got a wonderful uh, jewel that, that was bought by Duchess Deborah um, from the sale of Cornelia Countess Craven. And it's this amazing heart-shaped sapphire brooch surrounded by diamonds with this wonderful um, pear-shaped pink diamond. And that was bought for pure pleasure and enjoyment. And that's a real revelation, um, you know, as to what somebody would choose to buy if they could. And it's just this wonderful, joyful piece. Um, other things are from archaeological excavations, um, and they, they've come into the collection in a quite a scholarly way. But um, to see them being worn um, by the present generation is it adds something to all those past nuances they're constantly being added to and enjoyed and I think that's one of the the main pleasures of, of curating a family collection it's not static at all you know it keeps growing and changing and that's why the present duchess adds to it doesn't she with um uh, Andrew Greener particularly Greener's definitely one of her favorites she commissioned a pair of earrings from Jojo Greener to go with the Duchess necklace. So the, the Duchess certainly has been fond of Greener since the 1960s. It's, um, I think she won a, a, a brooch and a raffle. And that just opened her eyes up to this whole world of really contemporary jewellery. You know, she was a very young woman and, and that gave her uh, an outlet to, to buy things that were for her generation. Uh, so, so it's great for the present Duchess to be able to choose from these really historical pieces. Um, I'm sure there must be some, some comfort there in knowing that you're wearing something that previous Duchesses have worn. It must bolster your confidence hugely. Um, but the flip side is that she, she also can, can buy and, and wear things that express her personality. Well, of course, Andrew Greener was the great modernist, English modernist, who really changed jewellery. There was this um, seminal exhibition at the Goldsmiths Company in about 1961, when it really came to light. And and in a way, it's sort of very relevant to have it in your collection when you think of Georgina Cavendish's um, interest in mineralogy, because Andrew Greemer is was less about precious stones, but interesting stones. And sometimes it was a fossil or fluorite or something very unusual, just chosen um, for its colour rather than its preciousness. Absolutely. There's lots of parallels that you can draw between things that are new to the collection and things that have been here a long time. And that's a really lovely facet of what we do. The Duke has this favourite phrase, which is everything was new once. And I think that's quite a nice way to look back at what we have in the collection. It was you know, the height of sophistication. It might have been challenging. It was the contemporary art of its time. Whoever bought it, their parents probably hated it. You know, but what has survived, it's, it's created these layers of juxtaposition and, and, if you like, conversations across the different generations of objects. And one thing that we, we probably shouldn't forget is it's not just Chatsworth. Um, they've been around 19 
different houses that have been associated with the Cavendishes over the last 500 years. And many of the things that were at all of those different properties have been funneled down into Chatsworth. So we're able to create juxtapositions and, and relationships that probably in their time never would have been. Um, but because of fate, um, it, we're now able to do so. And talking about keeping this living collection alive and and adding contemporary pieces, we're joined here today by Taka Kings, the artist who's been commissioned by the family for the exhibition starting on March the 26th called Living With Art We Love. And so, Taka, I'm very interested because you've actually created things for the family before, but more of your artworks, haven't you? And this one will involve jewellery. Hi, Carol. Yes, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. In the past, I've, I've made um, paintings and drawings for them, which obviously hang on their walls, and I've made a series of, of wall drawings there, which was very exciting. But this is the very first... In fact, it was the first time I'd ever made jewellery. Of any kind. How was that challenge for you? It was very exciting. I always find um, moving medium to be, A, you learn something new, and I'd always been very interested in artist jewellery and had wanted to make something. So it was quite um, apposite that this happened. And they particularly wanted jewellery. Was that important to them that it was, was a jewel? So it began by, by them wanting a miniature that to add to their collection of miniatures and then it, it sort of turned into a, a few pieces of jewellery that were all relating because it was meant to relate to their collection what they've been collecting it turned into lots of comments on on work that they've both inside and outside Chatsworth that they've commissioned from other artists from different artists, mm-hmm. uh, garden designers, mm-hmm. and the redecoration of Chatsworth that they did. So that's so many avenues you can go down. How did you distill a particular idea out of all of that? There were so many that you you could go on and on and on, keep making things for years if you wanted. But I, I would talk to Amanda, the present Duchess, about which aspects of their collection they were interested in. The redecoration of the interior of Chatsworth and alteration was was done by Peter Inskip, the architect, and Dave Milinarik, the designer. And so it seemed important to reflect those both those people and the work that they did on the house. Hence, there were two pieces of jewellery, one which is a golden window as they... Re, I think in the past they had been gilded, but they re-gilded them. So they were they they were remaking a lot of the old sort of tassels all around the beds and things. So we I made a piece of a pair of earrings that are two of the tassels. So what which room is the first box? It's called the centre room, and it's a very beautiful, very spare room that seemed to be very like the architect and the designer and and the Duke and Duchess. And it has a hardly anything in it but a piano, beautiful Sean Scully. And and that just the room in itself, I would often think was one of the most beautiful rooms in the house. So you've recreated that in miniature? So it's a scaled model of that room. 
and then you hang how many pieces of jewellery in that room? In that room are five pieces of jewellery. And then there's a... They also commissioned recently... You were talking about plates earlier. Michael Craig Martin to make them a, a, a set of plates. So there's another little pendant which is sort of implying one of Craig Martin's plates. Mm-hmm. And that's another little pendant that we've propped up on a on a table in this room as if it was a very large plate and so they'll be in the room unless somebody wants to wear them and then they can remove them from the room and wear it exactly and then they can remove them from the room and and wear them some easier to remove than others (laughs) (laughs) which are they not easy what are they (laughs) well the so that there's a there's a bracelet that that I designed, which is to do with this series of wall drawings that I made. And that's sort of tied on little bits of transparent plastic string from the roof of the, of the room. So that would be harder to, harder to take off. So it's a fantastical jewelled doll's house. It is really, yes. Which came about sort of by mistake in the way that all good things do. Well, and a conversation that evolves. And a conversation and that evolves. So is it incredibly important that um, anyone commissioning artwork has a, has a close relationship with the artist? I think it's very helpful because you build up a, a, an understanding and a, and a trust that therefore makes everything much more easy and sort of it flows much better if, that, if that's the case. They're very, very good at commissioning artworks in that they they stand back in a in a very impressive way but they're also involved because I guess you have to trust the artist's ideas you do and particularly if you're commissioning something which is different from going and seeing something you like and buying it because you you can't really control what you're going to get yes there's a risk so there's a risk in it yes and and I think they're they're very understanding of that situation, which is quite unusual in, in, in people who are collectors. So, Sash, are you very pleased to have some contemporary works coming into the collection? Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Um, Tarka's work was originally commissioned for um, an exhibition we created called Life Stories, but it couldn't fit better with this year's exhibition, which is all about the Duke and Duchess's collecting. And what could be a better illustration of all of the things that you might associate with them? You haven't um, touched on the outdoor box, really, Tarka, but that's in this fabulous nighttime scene, if you want to describe it. Yes, it's a much, it's a smaller box, and it's as if you were in the, in the Paxton Rockery, which they've, they've kind of adapted. What would you say, Sash, about that? They have. So they've, they've taken... The, the Paxton Rockery, which if you haven't seen it, it's this amazing, almost lunar landscape of these enormous blocks of stone. And some of them are piled on top of each other to create a waterfall. Um, and they've actually incorporated that into part of a new garden. So rather than Lockstock changing something, they've worked with the character and brought their own planting and aspirations into it and that's really what your your box reflects isn't it the the meshing of those two things yeah so the box reflects the stones it and then the the necklace that hangs the main thing that hangs in that is a necklace which is 
again about the rockery and the the sort of water that falls down the centre of that rockery. So it was a sort of it seemed that what they do outdoors was as important to them as what they do indoors, and therefore you needed both. And where will these be displayed? They're going to be in the exhibition. They're not going to be locked up in the gold vault, are they, <laughs> after that? <laughs> not for this year, at least. Um, so they're in a glass vitrine on the, the visitor route, um, in a corridor, which one side of which is entirely populated by a ceramic work by Jakob van der Beugel. And it's called informally the DNA wall because in the ceramic tiles, it, it reflects the DNA of the Duke and Duchess, their son, Lord Burlington, and his wife, Lady Burlington. Um, and then in the centre, there's a panel of, of DNA, which is the common DNA that we all humans have. So it's this, this um, juxtaposition of the particular and the general. Yeah, the, the Duke and Duchess's boxes will be on display uh, this year, um, and I'm sure that they will be living with them in the near future. That's so exciting. And in the way that we learned about the second Duke from his carved gemstone collection, what do you want in 100, 500 years, when people look at your boxes, Tarka, what do you want them to understand about the um, Devonshires? I think they're both very playful and very serious about their, their collecting and the, the way that they live their life. And that's something that you you notice when you're around them. And and I think that the current Duchess, to go back to the jewellery in particular, she wears she wears jewellery in a very natural way, wouldn't you? So, so she'll wear quite unusual things just in her daily life, which, so she's completely kind of, she's not just putting something on to go to a very grand evening. She, it, it's part of her her every day and I think that's pieces from the collection anything she feels like is it is is it that will she come down sash and rifle through the gold safe and say oh I want that and I I do I would love it if she did um there's a beautiful pair of pendant diamond earrings um that the Duchess has worn on occasion and when they were included in the house style exhibition we had a little card that when the Duchess wanted to wear them we could put on display and say the Duchess is wearing them tonight, and and that was lovely. Um, and the, as I said, uh, the Duchess and her daughter Lady Selina both wore one of the tiaras to their wedding. So it'd be thrilling if that happened again, or even to a coronation. And in 2017, Lady Burlington did a, a shoot for Vogue where she wore um, pieces from the Perrault, um some of Duchess Deborah's insects. Uh, brooches and some of the ancient gold rings all together and that was just phenomenal um, to see them worn like that in this totally fashion context so yeah I'd be thrilled if that continued. So they'll be on display and what what intrigued you about making jewellery Tarka? Why did you say that you'd always wanted to make jewellery? Oh, because well I, I particularly looked at, at artist jewellery which in a way is coming at it from a, a different angle and more like what you're saying about Andrew Greamer in that mm. it's the colours that are interesting or something mm. and and I was very ignorant about how jewellery is made so the, the, at the beginning there's quite a lot of oh I'd like this and then they'd say 
or no, you can't do that, you know, it's not possible. Or I think the fact that, that, that jewellery is worn by people is very interesting to, to, to an artist in that it's a very, it becomes very, very personal in a way that pictures on a wall or sculptures or videos aren't. And they, they seem to sort of hold a lot of emotion for people in a very strange way and always have. And so I think that was part of why it was interesting. And just because to cross cross boundaries and cross areas is is always invigorating for the other work that you do. So it, it sort of bounces you back and forth with different things. So will you find returning to pencil drawing and cut paper a light relief after this. Well, it's always good to go back and have a change again. Exactly, yes, in a way. Um, <laughs> because, of course, it's, it's all... Everything is very complicated. And, and to understand and find out how jewellery works and, and is made is extraordinary, too, and all the in, incredible um, craftsmanship that can go into things. And will you continue? Will you, do you think you'll make more jewellery? I will. I have, I have made some more since that. Um, for Louise Guinness Mm -hmm. and hopefully I will carry on because we did a If Jewels Could Talk episode with Louisa on artist jewellery ah fascinating so anyone interested by this can go back and and listen to that and hear what you're talking about artist jewels in more depth Um, but I think you know Sash what I get from you is that it makes such a difference um that all these things are um, in a home and the family live in the home. Absolutely. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with static or, or closed collections, but having a collection that is lived with is, is completely different and it's something that I, I particularly enjoy. And to be able to ask questions now, one of the frustrations of what I do is that the things that aren't recorded from the past, so I'm always asking questions now so that I can pass on to my successors um, the, the why of, of a lot of things, because that's when you can root out, you know, why these stones, why these designs, why now? And that, that's just lovely. And I, I am really hopeful um, that we'll see tiaras and other things going out and being photographed and, and lived in in the future. And what an honour that your jewellery is part of that, Tolkien. It's so nice and it's, it's so exciting to be able to see... Like, as you were saying, the Duke said, everything was new once because you become aware of that at Chatsworth. And that's, I can't think of anywhere in England that that has got a living collection in quite the same way. So you don't come across, across it very often. So, yeah, I'm thrilled. Tarka, thank you so much. Thank you so much. For taking the time. And thank you for having, talking to us both. The exhibition Living With Art We Love is on now and will run until the 9th of October. Sash, thank you so much for hosting us. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening. We've come to the end of the season. Um, We will be back in June. In the meantime, please get hold of us on the website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, we've got a terrific season lined up. We are going to start with Royal Jewels. We have access to London and Windsor to discuss the jewels of Her Majesty the Queen over the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. We are going to go on and talk about great women who've worn jewellery 
and great women who've made jewellery. As ever, it'll be a range of the past and the future and the significance of jewellery in all the cultural aspects of our lives. So please join us in June for the next season. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Woolton. <laughs> <laughs>